0: the number of people who cross borders irregularly to Europe or in the world is actually much lower than people think. In the last four years, the number of people who crossed from all of Africa and the Middle East, Turkey, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, to the European Union is around 100,000 a year. And very few of whom will qualify for protection as refugees. So they leave for other reasons. There's a myth that then, well, if 100,000 come next year, a million will come, and then next year, five million. You have a rhetoric, including from some international organizations, that says that tens of millions of people are on the road around the world as migrants or as refugees trying to get to rich countries. In reality, the numbers crossing from Africa to Europe in the last 20 years, on average, were a few 10,000 a year. And now, the good fight with Yasha Monk.
1: For the last, week, there have been at least four big controversies taking up oxygen in American life. First, there was people like the musician Neil Young pulling the music from Spotify in an attempt to force the organization to remove Joe Rogan's podcast. Then there was Georgetown University suspending Ilya Shapiro for some tweets about Joe Biden's presumptive Supreme Court nominee. Then ABC's review suspended Whoopi Goldberg for her characterization of the nature of the Holocaust. And finally, Jeff Zucker, the president of CNN, announced that he was resigning his position because he seems to have been less than fully truthful with some internal investigators about what appears to be a consensual romantic relationship he had with an employee. I don't want to enter into any of these controversies in detail, but I'm just struck by the endless amount of oxygen, which is taken up by demands to punish or fire people by debates over whether or not people were rightly punished or fired, by attempts to defend people from possibly unjust firings or punishments, by concerns people have about whether to speak up against those firings and punishments may get them themselves into trouble. I don't have any particular point here other than to say that this all just strikes me as the mark of a profoundly unhealthy culture. I often, in Europe, am in the position of trying to defend the United States against some pretty simplistic prejudices that Europeans often hold about America. And the first of them, one of the most prominent of them, is that America just has this Puritan culture in which people are always punished for seeming wrongdoings. And there's this atmosphere of witch hunts which America falls into again and again. You know, I always want to defend America because I think this country is more appealing and more interesting and more exciting than outside critics often think. But on this particular count, I just find it harder and harder to do so. If you step away from the country as I have for the last months, which I spent in Europe, and you come back to see just the amount of unhealthy energy spent on this mutual policing, it really puts into stark relief just how sick our culture is in that respect at the moment. My guest today is Gerald Knaus. Gerald is the founder and the chairman of a European stability initiative. And there's something that I find really fascinating about Gerald, which is that many people who work in think tanks come up with smart ideas, smart analyses, but on the most difficult, on the most naughty issues facing the world, they are rarely able to have a real impact. Gerald has really transformed the way that European governments are thinking about the issue of migration and the issue of refugees. And he is now helping to shape the European response to the crisis of the rule of law occasioned by the rise of populists in countries like Poland. So we talked about the nature of a refugee system around the world, why it is at a crisis point at the moment, how we can have humane solutions to the question of migration. We also talked about what democratic countries and bodies like the European Union can do to stop democratic backsliding in countries like Poland. And for we sometimes went into the weeds with some of those things. I think it also serves as a model for how to actually make progress on these really difficult policy issues that seem like they're not really amenable to a solution. Gerard Knaus, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Yasha. There's many topics that I'm excited to discuss with you. But one of the topics on which your work is most well known is migration and the problem of asylum in particular. I guess as I see it, there's this odd challenge to the asylum system in particular, which is that as designed in Western countries and the most affluent countries, it was sort of designed initially, and I may be getting this wrong for political refugees, for relatively small numbers of people. And now the mechanism is often used by much larger numbers of people who are coming to the countries and making those claims. And they're often in a humanitarian desperate situation, but they also often create political situations which are quite dangerous in those countries because accepting those humanitarian claims often leads to the rise of populists and extremists within them. So, you know, how do you see the nature and the problem of migration, in particular of refugees at this moment, sort of, to help us understand it in a historical perspective, what the stakes of this moment are?
0: Yes, well, let me start with this conception that the origin of the system we have today, which is really down to, I think, one key word in the refugee convention, non-refoulement, which means no pushbacks, which comes out of the experiences really of both the pre-Second World War situation and the situation during the Second World War and the immediate post-war crisis of what states are allowed to do at their borders when desperate people are trying to flee a desperate situation. And I wrote a book last year where I start for that reason with the Swiss border to the Third Reich because the real background to the non-refoulement principle was the experience of Switzerland sending back at least 25,000 German Jews to the Third Reich. And the policy of Switzerland at that time, which was one of the few remaining democracies, it was a democratic government that decided this. They had a chief of the foreigner police who was in his office until, in fact, the 50s. He remained long after the war. But he was there during the Second World War. Their policy was, we don't want the regular arrivals of refugees. In fact, they didn't recognize Jews, prisoners of Nazi Germany, Soviet citizens. They didn't recognize them as refugees. So their policy was to push them back. And this is very interesting for two reasons. First, they succeeded. So at the end of the war, there were just above 2000 German or German Austrian Jews in, in Switzerland. They succeeded with very limited technical means. So this theory that people, if they're just desperate enough, if there's enough pressure, you know, we hear this now climate change, wars, demography, people who are desperate will always cross borders. Well, you can't be more desperate than a Viennese Jew in 1939 or a Berlin Jew in 1940. And yet, Switzerland closed its borders with brutality. And after the Second World War, the question then became, well, is this going to be the policy that continues? And when diplomats met in Geneva in 1951 and drew up the Refugee Convention, they actually explicitly said, if you're persecuted, if you have a justified fear of persecution, because of your race, religion, political conviction, and a a range of other reasons, you cannot be pushed back. That was the core idea. And it wasn't supposed to be discretionary. It wasn't as it was during the Second World War in Switzerland. They didn't send back French soldiers who deserted. They were not sent back. But they sent back Soviet forced laborers or German Jews. But you couldn't do that. It was objectively determined by whether you faced a justified fear of persecution. That is a radical idea. So this was embraced in 1951, but it doesn't answer most questions we have today because, of course, you need to get to the border first. I mean, you need to get into Switzerland. But the idea was you should never push people back if that produces terrible consequences. And that idea then expanded. Initially, it was just for Europe, and then um, it was expanded to the rest of the world. And now, it, this non-refoulement principle is no longer just in the refugee convention. I mean, the Convention Against Torture, that is universally accepted by almost every country in the world, has the same principle even stronger. You can't push people into countries where they face inhuman treatment or torture. So that's the core idea. But of course, the key question is, at the moment, most borders in the world, like the Swiss borders then, are policed with brutality. People can't cross borders, and pushbacks are on the verge of becoming not only accepted in much of the world, but even in Europe and America. So there is a
1: refugee convention which rightly holds that when people are in danger of their lives because they're persecuted and they reach a country where they would be safe, they shouldn't be allowed to be sent back. One of the limitations on that is that, obviously, if you reach that country from another country that is safe... If you are from Haiti and you're really in danger in Haiti, but you reach the United States via Canada, then in principle, it should be allowed for the United States to say, well, you should go back to Canada. The third element, I think, to get to something like what the United States faces at its southern border and what Europe faces at its various perimeters is that a lot of people who have very understandable and genuine and heartfelt reasons to want to leave their countries start to use the machinery of asylum, even though they don't technically qualify. And they, of course, say, hey, wouldn't it be wonderful to be in a country where I can live a more self-determined and more affluent and more decent life? But often there are people who don't fall under the technical definition of what would entitle them to asylum under the Geneva Convention. But obviously, when there's large numbers of people who fall into that category, that then overwhelms the asylum system and it makes it very difficult to determine Who has a rightful entitlement to use the Geneva Convention and who doesn't? So tell us a little bit about that element and how that created something like the situation in Europe in 2015, how that plays into something like what we're seeing at the southern border of the United States today.
0: Let me start with a few surprising facts, which most people who follow this debate don't know. The number of people who cross borders irregularly to Europe or in the world is actually much lower than people think. In the last four years, the number of people who crossed from all of Africa and the Middle East, Turkey, Libya, Morocco, Tunisia, to the European Union, is around 100,000 a year. And of those, if you look at what the nationalities are or have been in the last four years, I mean, this year, for example, the biggest group have been Tunisians, people from Bangladesh, people from North Africa, Morocco, Algeria. Egypt, very few of whom will qualify for protection as refugees. So they leave for other reasons. The challenge then is that all democracies, and we've seen it in Australia, but it's also true in Europe, there is strong pressure not to allow this loss of control. There is a sense that if people arrive in larger numbers, that there's a myth that then, well, if 100,000 come next year, a million will come and then next year, 5 million. You have a rhetoric, including from some international organizations, that says that tens of millions of people are on the road around the world as migrants or as refugees trying to get to rich countries. In reality, the numbers crossing from Africa to Europe in the last 20 years, on average, were a few 10,000 a year. and The Syrian refugee crisis was a complete and utter exception. You had 12 months in which a million people crossed from Turkey to Greece. It was 40,000 a year before. These 12 months, and it was 30,000 a year after, and it was a million in these 12 months. And that exception had to do with the fact that the biggest refugee crisis in the world, which was Syria, generating millions of refugees, the biggest crisis of refugees since the early 70s in the world was next to Europe. So Turkey, which kept its borders to Syria open for many years, so any Syrian could enter Turkey legally, Turkey became the country with most refugees in the world. Lebanon, the country with most refugees per capita in the world. And so, of those who reached Turkey, a minority then for 12 months went on to Europe. Most remained in Turkey. But this is completely exceptional. And the reality is, if you look today at Syria or if you look today at Afghanistan, where there's a massive famine, there are a lot of people who are in fear of persecution, a lot of people who have reasons to flee, they can't get out. So the official numbers by UNHCR, this year, the whole of 2021, were less than 100,000 people as refugees left Afghanistan. The neighboring countries closed their borders. Today, the borders around Syria are closed. So most irregular migration, it's actually relatively small. And the American-Mexican border is an exception. So that's fascinating context, but I fear that
1: It slightly buries the worrying headline, which is that one of the things that was remarkable about 2015 was not just the absolutely terrible civil war in Syria, it was that there weren't any borders put in place. And therefore, a lot of deeply desperate people took that opportunity in order to try to come to Europe. And those were partially Syrians, but there were, of course, also people from Afghanistan and other countries. But when you're saying, that today there's 30,000 or so per year in the world," isn't that precisely because somewhere there's somebody using extreme cruelty to keep those numbers down? Now Europeans prefer that that person be, you know, on the border of Afghanistan rather than on the border of Germany or Poland. But doesn't this sort of whole system hinge on the presence of some coercive force in very brutal ways? making sure that of the many, many, many more people in the world who, for very understandable reasons, desperately want to be in Europe, desperately want to be in the United States, only a small trickle are able to get there. Because that, to me, feels like the heart of a moral dilemma of all of this question. That if you don't have some brutal enforcement of borders somewhere between the very affluent countries, Western Europe or North America and the much less affluent countries of the Middle East and Africa and so on, then you get huge surges of people. And as we saw in 2016 and beyond, that can have very immediate and very scary political effects. Or you have to use somewhere forms of political violence that are very, very difficult to count smartly. morally. Am I too simplistic in saying that this is the
0: basic dilemma for which we need to somehow try to find an answer? Well, if you look at Africa and Europe, because that's where the fears of millions every year, usually it's part of a story of Africa's population will double in the next decades, there will be climate change consequences, there's instability. So the idea is that there will be millions of Africans coming to Europe. This hasn't happened ever. And it hasn't happened, not just because of Europe, it's just going through the Sahara into Libya, which I've had many meetings with people who've done that from the Gambia or Nigeria or Senegal, is hell. Getting on boats from Mauritania or Senegal or Morocco to try to reach the Spanish Canary Islands and you're in a small fishing boat for days, weeks even, it's hell. The number of people and especially the number of refugees which are vulnerable people who don't have many resources, who actually tried it, has never been high. What you have is a number of young men, usually, especially on this route, it's nine out of 10 are men, who learn of somebody who's made a successful trip. So, for example, the small country, the Gambia, which has only 2 million people, it was one of the top five countries of reaching Italy in those years because people learned that it was possible and then others tried. And so they took enormous risks. They crossed the Sahara, which was terrible, deadly. Lots of people killed. Uh, They were in Libya. They were enslaved. They were tortured. Uh, Then they got on boats. Then many of them died on the route. But when they made it to Europe, they stayed in Europe because there the system breaks down. Even if they don't get protection, even if an asylum system says, "Ah, actually, you're not a refugee because the Gambia is not a democracy. Returns don't work. So there, the reality is exactly like you described. In the end, it ended up being the cruelty in Libya, the fact that people were tortured in Libyan camps, and the news about how deadly even getting to Libya was, all the stories of Gambians who then came back and said, listen, don't do it. And I know civil society organizations in the Gambia, they travel around the villages and say, we've been in Libya. It's not worth it. I know many Gambians in Germany who say this. I would not do it again. But it took a few years for this news to spread. But the system was crazy and deeply immoral because what you have is you have a country where it is impossible, there is no way legally even to hope that if you get an education, if you get training, that somehow you can legally travel to Europe as a student, as a tourist, as a visitor. Mobility between Africa and Europe, legal mobility has declined in the last few years. And the irregular arrivals, it's a survival of the fittest with all the brutality on the route, and now the route is closed again. In Libya, what you should do, and I've been to the Gambia many times now, and I've proposed this in Germany because a lot of these Gambians then went from Italy to Germany. They are now here and have been here for six years. Make an agreement between Germany and the Gambia. Say that those who are now here, you will not deport them. It's not going to work. The Gambia wouldn't accept them. It's deeply unpopular. But also, from now on, anybody who comes and reaches Germany and who is not a refugee, which is 95%, the Gambia agrees to take them back immediately. So if they are not refugees, you take them back immediately. The goal should be you discourage further irregular migration. But in return, Germany offers some legal routes. You know, It increases scholarships. It offers schemes where if you get a qualification, it makes it easier for relatives to get a visa. That kind of policy To discourage irregular arrivals, but to allow some legal mobility is both humane and in line with the Refugee Convention. And that is, I think, what democracies should work on. It requires diplomacy, but I think can get majority support because it promises control. The Traffic Light Coalition in Germany, in its coalition treaty, and I talked to all the negotiators in the weeks they drew it up, they had a very good policy, goals. They say, we want to reduce irregular migration. We want less people to come like this. We want to do it, however, without pushbacks, without breaking refugee law, and without causing suffering and deaths. So we need cooperation with countries of origin or countries of transit. And that's, in fact, exactly the way forward here to have humane control.
1: What is the solution for the situation at the southern border of the United States, which is slightly different, right? I mean, the standard talking point from broadly speaking, the left and the Democratic Party seems to be, we will improve socioeconomic conditions in Central America. We will make sure that people in El Salvador and Guatemala and other countries have more opportunities where they are, and therefore they won't want to come to the United States. But it seems to me that for a lot of the reasons that you have outlined, that is illusory. I'm completely in favor of the United States doing what it can to help those desperately poor countries on the periphery of a country to develop. I think that is insofar as feasible, a wonderful thing. But simply the gap between what the standard of living is in Central American countries and what it is in the United States, the difficulty involved in solving the problems of corruption and organized crime in those countries from a distance are just so big. And from what I understand from research, the sort of way in which actually when people become more affluent, they have more resources and they're more likely to attempt irregular migration, are such that that does not seem like a very realistic solution. So if we are hoping for a solution in the next five or 10 years, not in the next 50 or 100, would you recommend to be Biden's administration, what do you recommend to the American government more broadly to do in order to solve its problem of how to treat migrants humanely while managing migration flows?
0: Well, what we see at the moment in America is a very good example that good intentions don't translate into good policy. In the last fiscal year, you had many more people being pushed back by the U.S. authorities into Mexico than you had in the last year of Trump. So you have less people get protection now in the U.S. than in the last year of Trump. You have almost twice the number of people that have died on that border in the last fiscal year compared to the last fiscal year of Trump. So you have, at the moment, the policy by an administration that says, and I believe it wants to have a humane policy. But didn't think it through, where more people are being pushed back, more people try to arrive, more people die, than under Trump, who very openly said, I want to get rid of the right to asylum. Right? So having the right intention is not linked to a more humane policy. And you have the political consequences that this is politically an explosive topic everywhere. And I see it from afar. I'm not an expert on the US system, but the, the opinion polls I'm reading is that most Americans think and they have reason to think. That this policy at the moment is failing. It's not a good policy. More pushbacks, more arrivals, more deaths. It creates a sense of pressure. So what you need to do is have a realistic policy. And that includes the progressives that actually really works on trying to replace and reduce irregular arrivals with regular possibilities for those that have a good cause and are desperate enough. And these are two groups of people, those who are genuinely in need of protection. You know, Not everybody who goes to the U.S. is in need of protection, but some will be. And if you are desperate and really in need of protection, then the way to stop you going the regular route is to offer you some chance where you can apply in a neighboring country for resettlement. And so it's a good idea that the Biden administration says it wants to increase global resettlement to the U.S. This is for refugees. And then the second group, I think, is a big group driving this in the U.S., is people who have relatives. People who've been in the U.S. before. And then we are expelled and try to get back from the media reporting. I mean, these are people who are very motivated. They might have a relative irregularly staying in the US, a mother, a father, a brother, and then they try to go irregularly. Now, if you could offer programs of legal routes for those groups, and then you combine that with the ability, and then you take away pressure at the border, with the ability to return. Those who do not need protection fast. Because this is the problem with asylum. If anybody who reaches the US and who you don't push back, then waits a year or two or three because the asylum system is completely overwhelmed, then stays in the US irregularly, builds a new life. A return after that date becomes cruel and very hard to carry out. So then, what you need to do is have the ability to say to people if you cross irregularly and you're not a refugee, Even if you are a refugee, we make arrangements with other countries that, you know, your refugee claim will be processed somewhere else. Of course, in return, we must offer these countries something substantial. We offer these countries that we help take people regularly. If you have relatives, there is a process where you can apply. We regularize the status of those in the U.S. already. But we try to stop irregular migration because politically and morally. The dangers in the irregular migration, the vulnerability to criminals, to criminal gangs in Mexico, in Central America, the number of deaths, and in the end, the political cost of Trump returning, because he says, listen, I'm the only one who has a solution, is too high. So for progressives, I think the key question is to stop believing that a humane asylum system is one where you give up control of the border. And for let's say, security and control-oriented Democrats or Republicans who don't believe, like Trump, that you want no migration, the policy has to be, well, if we want to control and reduce irregular migration, we must offer other ways, other ways for people to claim and where they have a chance to come. I think this will not solve the problem, but it will vastly reduce it and make it manageable. But it involves both control and legal access. And The strange thing is, in the ideological debates we have at the moment, in Europe, in America, you either are team control and you say, well, we want to push them back and have nobody come, or you are basically for open borders and say, anybody who comes to our borders, well, let them in, and then we have a four-year asylum process, and then we try to work for legalization because they've been here for a long time. And In this context of ideological positions, in the end, it's always the control and pushback group that wins.
1: I wonder whether in this particular case, it's not actually that there's half of a population that want one thing and half of a population that want the other thing, but that most people want a combination of things that's impossible. Which to say, it seems to me when you look at the history of this in the United States, that, you know, the Obama administration, Hillary Clinton as a candidate, were very sympathetic to immigrants and asylum seekers. And that created a huge opening for Donald Trump, which helps to explain his 2016 election. Then the Donald Trump administration has a sort of proudly cruel policy towards asylum seekers in particular and towards immigrants. And that actually leads to significant backlash against Trump. The political opinions on migration were more welcoming of migration under Trump than they have been at any other point in recent memory in the United States. So when Biden comes in with a policy that, again, is much more sort of intent on being humane and so on, and not only does it fail to be more humane in the ways that you've outlined, but it's also deeply politically unpopular again. And you can go through the same zigzag in Germany, where there was a huge backlash against Angela Merkel because she was not sufficiently sympathetic to asylum seekers, and then she keeps the borders open in 2015, 2016, and then there's a huge backlash against that. And you can see it with Theresa May's government which is quite popular at the beginning because it takes a very hard line on immigrants, but then it has to do with a big domestic crisis because of its treatment of the so-called Gurkhas. And so I think what's going on here is that people want a limit on migration without any kind of state cruelty. And nobody has yet figured out how to do that, except, I suppose, the proposal you put forward. So do you think if governments adopted what you're talking about and we've talked about this in the context of Europe and we've talked about that in the context of the United States. Would that be enough to get out of this zigzag political dynamic where people keep changing their minds and whenever half
0: of it is being done, they think, well, what about the other half? I think you describe it well. It is two souls in most people's breast, you know. I met people who worked with refugees in Sweden, the country that gave most protection per capita in the last decade in the world through asylum, 230,000 people in a few years. And those are people who work with refugees, but they also said, we need some control. So, you know, they don't want to be cruel, but they want to have some control. And if you don't answer both in the end, it's going to be the Trumps that set the policy. Let me be concrete. I give you two examples in the central Mediterranean. And this is what this German government has said and written it wants to do in its coalition treaty. But the difficulty will be doing it. I'm aware of the difficulty. But they said, we need to find partners. If Germany, France, and Italy negotiate with a country in North Africa and say, listen, are you prepared from a cut-off date to take a limited number of people that we rescue? So the goal is we rescue people. We don't let anyone drown. We actually in- increase the rescue effort, which has been reduced, but we don't return people to Libya because Libya is a cruel place. and Legally, Europeans can't return people to Libya, and we don't support the Libyans doing it for us, which is just cynical. But we want to stop people coming in this way. We offer a country like Tunisia something that we offer to Ukraine. The European Union offered to Ukraine visa-free travel for its citizens. Ukrainians can travel to Europe without a visa. Imagine this for the Mexicans. The U.S., I think, is far away from doing this, but Europe offered this to Moldova, Georgia, the Balkans, Ukraine, and it worked. Why is it working? Because the Ukrainians had to fulfill a lot of conditions. They are taking back any Ukrainian who has no right to stay. Uh, they are taking back others who cross from Ukraine to Europe. But in return for cooperation, Ukrainians can travel visa-free. It's working. So we offer this to Tunisia, the first country in Africa, visa-free travel to the European Union, in return for after cut off date taking back the people that we rescue. The number of people who would then be taken back to Tunisia would rapidly fall because people wouldn't try. You don't pay, you don't risk your life in Libya if you are then returned within a very short period. You actually solve the problem you talk about. And the same, of course, was what my colleagues and I proposed to Turkey in 2015. It led to the EU-Turkey statement. The idea is that Turkey agrees with the European Union that from a cut-off date, it takes people back, not by pushback, They can apply for asylum, but those that are found to be safe in Turkey are returned. The flow immediately collapsed. The number of deaths in the Aegean fell from 1,100 to 80 in 12 months. And in return, the European Union offered to Turkey resettlement of refugees in a larger number, support for the refugees in Turkey, financially the biggest aid in the history of the EU, 6 billion for the 3 million, 3.5 million refugees in Turkey for four years, plus the promise of visa-free travel for Turks which in the end, because of the military coup attempt in Turkey, collapsed. But this was a fair offer. And this actually was an offer the Turks offered to Europe on the 18th of March, 2016. The Turks took our paper, which we translated into Turkish. I went to Ankara, I talked to Turkish ambassadors, negotiators, and they returned to Germany and to the EU, the Dutch Presidency of the European Union, and said, here is what we propose to you. And the Germans and Dutch said, brilliant. So this is what we need to achieve with Morocco, with Tunisia, with other countries where we have legal migration, more resettlement, more support, and less people dying in the Mediterranean.
1: That's very compelling. Let's go a little bit beyond the topic of migration. One of the other big crises in Europe at the moment is around the rule of law in Poland. And you've been working very closely on this. So first of all, for an international audience that may be much less aware of what's happening there, what is the nature of a danger to the rule of law in Poland, and why has that led to a kind of standoff with the European
0: Union? Well, I can refer those who listen to you probably have read it to your book about deconsolidation of democracy, because what we have in Poland is really an extraordinary story. This was a success story of a democratic transition. You know, after communism, you had free elections. You had many elections, many changes in government. You had independent and proud courts, constitutional tribunal, a constitutional court, supreme court, an administrative court. You had civil society, you had media. I mean, this looked like a very robust democracy. And then in 2015, a political party came to power after an election campaign that was relatively modest. They didn't announce a radical agenda. But once they gained power, they actually set out in an incredibly smart, politically smart and brutal way to capture the key institutions. For example, in the constitutional court, they just paralyzed it. They imposed judges, the constitutional court in Poland has 15 judges, they imposed three that they were not legally allowed to impose. And then when the court didn't accept it, they said, well, from now on, we don't publish your decisions in the official gazette. So for one year... They just shut down the court within a few weeks of being in power, and then they played another trick to put a loyalist in the position of president of that court. And since then, the constitutional court has become a mouthpiece for the government. Whatever they want to do, the court always says it's constitutional. And then they set out to fire a huge number of judges to create a system where the minister of justice in the country is also in control of all the prosecutors. He can fire the presidents of every court in the country, which in turn means he can have pressure on every judge, and he can have a system where he can discipline every judge in the country for their decisions. So, an extraordinary concentration of powers in the hand of a minister of justice. Everything that happens in a courtroom in Poland, this man can control. It's like in Venezuela or in Russia or today in Turkey. You never had such a system in a European Union member state. Now, this system was created very quickly. There was a lot of resistance. People went into the streets. There were demonstrations. But because it was done step by step by step with surprising speed, all the mechanisms of control that we thought were in place failed. You know, all these protests didn't stop it. So now it's reached a point where it's come down to a real high noon, a showdown, because the only mechanism that had some effect was because Poland is a member of the European Union, the European Court of Justice, the highest court in the EU, which stepped in and said, for the European Union to work, it requires that Polish courts are free because your judgments in Poland are recognized by German courts, French courts, automatically. But if your courts do what the Minister of Justice tells them to do, if your judges are not free, the rest of Europe can't recognize these judgments anymore. And then... The European legal structure, which is based on voluntarily accepting each other's rules and judgments, you agree on them first, but then it's applied by national courts, collapses. So the European judges said, this cannot be possible in a member state. And now this fight has reached the moment of truth, because now the European Commission and the European institutions must decide if they put a massive fine on Poland, legally they can ask for a fine of five billion a year. Which is what we recommend, to say, if you don't implement this judgment within two months, you have to pay $5 billion to the European Union, 1% of your GDP a year, which is what the European Union does with companies when they break competition law. You know, a certain percentage of their turnover you have to pay. It needs to deter. And in Poland, then the question is, where most polls, actually in opinion polls, are pro-European Union, And a slight majority even thinks the European Union is too weak on the rule of law. Will this then stop the Minister of Justice? Will this be a great success for the rule of law imposed by European court? Or will it turn into a great failure where the European legal structure collapses? And it's literally these weeks that this battle is coming to a head. And it will be of huge significance for the future of this unique construction of member states jointly making laws and recognizing each other's judgments. That is Europe whether this will work out well. So I guess
1: I have two sources of slight skepticism about how likely it is that the European Court of Justice is likely to be able to deter Poland. The first is that we had a theory as political scientists that not just countries like Poland would be consolidated democracies and that they would be safe from the democratic systems, but also that membership in the European Union would, through all kinds of mechanisms, lock in the democratic institutions, that it would be impossible for a member state of the European Union to backslide in that manner. And so far, it has seemed to be the case But at each juncture, other member states of the European Union have not had the political will to impose any significant consequences on backsliding democracies, which include Poland, but also Hungary, and arguably a few other Central European states. And so I guess the first question is, sort of how likely is it that these very steep consequences will be applied? Does that just depend on the will of the European Court of Justice, or does it also need the cooperation of the European Commission and other European institutions? And then the second question is, look, ideally, the ECJ imposes the steep punishment, the Minister of Justice backtracks, and a kind of red line has been enforced. What happens if Poland simply ignores the ruling of the ECJ? Is that the beginning of the end of Poland's membership in the European Union, or is that simply likely to result in a demonstration of power by Poland, which is to say we can be a member of the EU, we can ignore this ruling, we cannot pay you 1% in GDP even though you say we have to, and there's nothing really the EU can do?
0: Let me go to the first question because that's the key. This does not depend on other member states. It does not depend on what Germany or France, the governments, think or do. And that is crucial because if it would depend on other member states, it wouldn't work. Any mechanism in the European Union that relies on the governments, the 27 governments, when they meet, the way the EU works is they make bargains all the time. It's a very good mechanism to reconcile interests. It's a very bad mechanism because nobody really wants to put anyone in the corner because you need them the next day. So Anything that requires member states becoming tough with each other, I don't think it's going to happen. But that is the beauty of the separation of powers. You know, the beauty of the separation of powers is that the oldest mechanism in the EU, which is the European Commission, taking a country to court, the court assessing whether this country breaks, in this case, the EU treaty, then the country has a chance to implement the judgment. If it fails, the European Commission can take the country to the court a second time. And then it's the court that determines the fee, the punishment. This mechanism, the first stage, has already happened. The European Commission took Poland to the court. The court made a decision, a judgment, which was historic on the 15th of July this year. The Commission then said to Poland, you need to implement it. Poland said no. The commission and said, well, if you don't implement it, we take you back to the court. It started the procedure, which takes two months. You have to write a letter. The Polish government responded. You write another letter. They respond again. It's the end of that process. The last deadline was a few weeks ago. So now the European Commission has said for four years, while this whole thing lasted, we will enforce this. So now it only has one more choice, which is to go back to the court. And then the court, which knows and has argued in many judgments that this is about the future of the European Union, it doesn't have a choice. It will impose a fine. The only question is, will the fine be high enough to be a deterrent? Now, we know on the Polish side, the Polish Minister of Justice has nothing to lose. He says, don't negotiate. In fact, he's preparing a more radical reform as we speak. He wants to fire even more judges because he wants to say, let's use that fight to actually do whatever we want. But he is leading a small party and his coalition partner and him have lost the majority in the lower house already. I think it is really important if the European Court of Justice establishes this line and articulates to the Polish public that it has no choice. This isn't against Poland. It is that a European Union in which a member state abolishes free courts cannot exist. But please, if you just reverse this, you will not pay any fine not only will you not pay any fine massive funding that the european union has frozen already i'm mean, we're talking about then 10 billion euros you know you don't pay the fine uh, 5 billion will become available right away there is high inflation in poland you know it's very attractive most polls i think in this situation would say to their politicians listen don't play this game and if then the political dynamics in Poland are, as I predict they would be, on this. And Job Roel, the Minister of Justice, will not reform or take back these reforms. Well, if others tell him, listen, then you can't stay Minister of Justice. He leads a small party that has 19 of the MPs in the Parliament of 460. He's very radical. He will not make a compromise, but he cannot stop it alone. So I think this is really a historic moment. It's a moment of truth. If you are right and the commission and the court shy away from this confrontation and Jobro wins. Not only will democracy in Poland go the way of Venezuela, but the European Union itself faces the biggest crisis in its history. But if this mechanism that is there manages to defeat what is a huge challenge to democracy, you know, it's not about who rules in Poland. You can have conservative governments, but you can't have governments that fire all the judges and control all the prosecutors and make them dependent on one man. If the European Union wins this battle, it's the most important victory for consolidating democracies who are EU members that we've ever seen.
1: So let's hope for a moment, because you're very inspiring on this point and may it all come true. What then is the step to making sure that there's no further democratic backsliding in other European Union states? Does that provide a kind of blueprint of a way forward? That can make sure that future processes of democratic deconsolidation within the European Union are hopefully cut off at an earlier stage and certainly can't progress beyond where they have gotten to today in Poland and Hungary.
0: The Polish government has argued in the last months that this is all about a power grab by Brussels institutions, that they are doing things they're not allowed to do. They want to create a centralizing federal state. That's all nonsense. There are no more of these judgments, no more infringement decisions today than there were five years ago. It's not that European institutions are more active now in punishing states or imposing fines than they were before. Poland is really unique. And this is true for Hungary, too. Hungary has never had a judgment by the European Court of Justice that said that its judiciary is no longer providing access to effective justice. This is Article 19 of the European Treaty, which says any member state is required to ensure that there are independent courts providing effective justice. Now, Poland is the only member state where this was ever found not to be the case. If Poland has to step back and reform the system so that it provides effective justice through independent courts, you've created a red line for all other countries in the future. So countries know that European institutions remain very reluctant to get involved. There are not many fines. You know, the total number of fines per year in the whole European Union, on average, imposed by the European Court of Justice, is two. So in the whole EU, on average, you get two times a year a financial penalty against the member state. So this is not a very activist court. But the goal should be to say, if you cross this line... If you don't implement a judgment that you've abolished independent courts, then the fine will be so prohibitive that really it's like you are saying you want to leave the EU. Now, the EU is a voluntary association, like the United Kingdom showed. You can leave it. But most people in most countries don't want to leave it. So if you make clear that there is, in fact, a red line that only Poland has crossed so far, Hungary has different problems with the rule of law. Hungary has a problem with corruption. But in Hungary, a democratic election might be possible next year. that might see a change of government. I think it's been a bit lazy of this to always say Hungary and Poland are the same problem. Hungary has many problems. And I was attacked by Viktor Orban a lot <laughs> in Hungarian media as an enemy of the state. All these newspapers said I was the conductor of the Soros Empire in Europe, allegedly. But I've always said Hungary is different from Poland. In Hungary, the European Union should just do something else. It should check that the money it spends... Doesn't feed a corrupt machinery that allows Orban to buy friends. You know, that's the big problem. It's a problem really of the use of money because Hungary receives billions a year. But I think that kind of principle, we last year we called it an Article 19 principle after the article of the EU treaty about the rule of law and effective justice would be a great step for the whole of the EU. And it would, of course, in future, hopefully make countries not even get close to that red line.
1: I want to ask you a sort of broader thematic question, which is that both on the topic of immigration and on the topic of rule of law in the European Union, you've tackled areas that are intractable, where there seemingly isn't a good solution. And you've been able to not only come up with, but actually really influence politics through ideas that somehow seem to cut through a good knot. How does one go about doing that and how can we collectively get better at cutting through the many Gordian knots of which the politics of developed democracies now seem to consist in all kinds of areas in North America and Western
0: Europe and many other parts of the world? I think the key is that when we approach a problem, I mean, my colleagues and myself, we have this small think tank. I mean, we don't have a big budget. We are not many people. We have 15 people but we work on problems that we identify as existential for European democracy and stability and human rights, we go into great detail. I so saw on Poland, we've now written a lot of very detailed analysis. And, of course, we go to Poland a lot. We go to all the policymakers in Europe. We understand what they think. We see their constraints. And we then try to find, which I think is what these populists have been doing, effectively. We try to find the point to concentrate on where the decisive instruments exist to do something. A lot of weakness in the response of progressives is those who worry about these populist attacks on our institutions, is that they respond in a very broad way. They respond with moralistic appeals. They see a very broad attack by populists all across Europe without distinguishing what specifically might be done in Poland. What specific tool might be used when it comes to Hungary? For example, I would never appeal to the European member states, the council, to use rule of law mechanism, which requires a majority vote of member states, because I know they wouldn't do it. You study institutions and you try to be realistic about what they can do, and then you narrow it down, and then you need to communicate effectively. I don't know if you've read any of our reports on Poland, but when we describe the crisis, basically we write like you're an intelligent 15-year-old, which is what most of us are on all the topics we don't understand or we are not experts on, right? And we then write in our report, imagine you are a young judge in Poland to start your career. How does the system which Poland has built work on you? And then we describe what it means. You know, The president of your court is controlled by the minister. Your promotion is controlled by the minister. You can be punished by the minister. The prosecutor you face in the courtroom is controlled by the minister. You know, your education was in a school controlled by the minister. We are making it very real. Or we are describing the story of an imaginary judge, Magda, who's 40 and works as a president of a court. So then people understand why this is unique. And the same is true for migration. If you want to work on humane borders, you need to understand. We've spent a lot of time talking to border guards. The Finnish border guard service. I went with them to the Russian border and they explained to me what they can and can't do. I spend a lot of time with asylum officers in the big asylum systems in Europe, the Dutch system, the French system, the German system. I was invited by the French Minister of Interior a few weeks ago to give a presentation of our ideas to all his prefects, you know, hundreds of French officials in the Ministry of Interior. When you speak to them, I can't just go there and say, what you do is bad. I must think what are the problems they are trying to solve and show them that what we propose works for them. And I think this means you cannot work on a lot of issues. You can't make many general proposals. (laughs) You need to focus on solving one problem at a time. And then you know, it will take years if you're lucky. But the result is that at the end, the people that you convince conversation after conversation who have the power and the legitimacy to act, they then realize when they've tried out everything else and it doesn't work, that perhaps this is the thing to do. Well, and sometimes you're lucky, even as a small institution. Jürgen Knaus, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I thank you. All the
1: best. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about this show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be liked, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
0: This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner their song, Chess Pieces.